What if a warning siren sounds? What should you do? Look for cover, the nearest cover. Don't try to make it home. You could be forgiven for thinking this kind of talk was over. The last time we worried, really worried, about nuclear weapons was probably at the height of the Cold War. Just duck and cover, the newsreel said. That's all we'll need to survive, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Finding shelter quickly may save your life. If you can't get into a house, get behind the wall. At the end of the Cold War, the third largest nuclear power on Earth was a place that might surprise you, Ukraine. Moscow had placed some 5,000 nuclear weapons on its soil when it was part of the Soviet Union. And Kyiv gave them all up in exchange for security guarantees from the U.S. and Britain, and a promise from Russia that it would respect its sovereignty. And now, Russia has broken its word. As President Vladimir Putin prepared to invade, he reminded the world that not only did he have nuclear weapons, but he was prepared to use them. Let me ask you, though, I need to ask you this because the world is afraid. That's CNN's Christian Amanpour, and she posed the question to Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov last month. And I want to know whether Putin intends the world to be afraid of the nuclear option. Would he use it? President Putin intends to, intends to make the world listen to and understand our concerns. Uh, look, Ukraine is a country sovereign. It's recognized by the United Nations. It's been around for a very, very long time. But I, I just want to know whether you are convinced or confident that your boss will not use that option. Well, we have a concept of uh, domestic security. And now Ukraine is this um, this wake-up call with a, a, a great military power, a, a, a great nuclear power, engaged in, um, in conventional conflict in one of its neighbors. The prospect of escalation stopped the U.S. and NATO from stepping in. And it raised an uncomfortable question we haven't thought about in years. Is the United States ready for a nuclear confrontation? I mean, most of the systems that we're using are from the 70s and the 80s. We've upgraded our to put a finer point on it, until recently, the systems were using 8-inch floppy disks, and the military was finding spare parts on eBay from people like this. So this is the IBM Series 1 that I found in my barn. My late father collected it. Um, it's a piece of amazing computer history, and they're incredibly rare. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. Today, America's nuclear weapon systems. Should we modernize, or could our retro programs be our strength? Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? 
The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. The heart of America's nuclear weapons program had been the IBM Series 1 computer. It was originally created in 1976. This is a promo for the new system, which was considered a general-purpose computing system. The Series 1, backed up with unexcelled service, provides instant access to patient profiles, prescription files, pricing information. It had 19-inch racks for data processing units and two-sided floppy disks. It does all that and much more. The dot matrix printer usually came standard. And just so you can visualize it, it's the size of a skinny refrigerator. It helps monitor the skies and powers the early warning systems that trigger late-night phone calls to the president about nuclear strikes. And it was just three years old when this happened. I was soundly sleeping one night when I got a phone call. When I picked up the phone, the voice on the other end identified himself as the watch officer. And the first thing he said to me was that his computers were showing 200 nuclear missiles on the way from the Soviet Union to the United States. And for one horrifying moment, I believe that we were about to witness the end of civilization. William Perry is a former U.S. Secretary of Defense and a trained mathematician. He was a top Pentagon official in the Carter administration when the call came in. I can't really put words to it. It was just, I was stunned. I was just completely stunned. And it would have been a loss of words if I'd had to say something. Had a nuclear war actually started? And should someone wake President Carter? As Perry weighed the possibilities, he concluded that this had to be some kind of mistake. There was nothing going on in the world that would have caused the Soviet Union to suddenly strike. Perry asked the watch commander to find out what had gone wrong with the systems. It's changed forever my way of thinking about nuclear weapons. Up until then, a false alarm, an attack by mistake, starting a nuclear war by mistake, was a theoretical issue. Until it wasn't. The mistake, Perry says, was a human one. Turns out someone had put a training tape into the computer instead of an operating tape. What the computer saw was a simulation of an actual attack. And it looked real because it was designed to look real. Perry says that night fundamentally changed the way he thought about nuclear weapons. He came to the conclusion that simple human error could lead to nuclear war. It was always very, very real because it got me right in my guts. And it's affected my thinking and my actions to this day, 40 years later. A simple interaction between a human and a computer that took the world to the brink. And when the world was talking about the reduction of warheads, those old IBMs seemed good enough. Everyone assumed the whole thing would eventually be phased out anyway. But today, that focus has changed. Now the Pentagon is pushing for modernization, so it would jettison the last of the old systems for something better, something newer. Though that presents problems, too. There is a truism about computers, which is that when we have a computer, we always want it to do more. Herb Lynn is a professor at Stanford University. He just wrote a book called Cyber Threats and Nuclear Weapons. And unlike a lot of his colleagues in Silicon Valley, he worries a lot about what he calls the more problem. Like 
We want it to be easier to use. We want it to be faster. We want it to have more, more capacity to it. We want it to uh, have more features to it, uh, more functionality in general. Okay. We always want more. The systems that we develop to provide that functionality get bigger and bigger. They get more and more complicated, more and more complex. But more complex means more problems. Just consider the amount of software needed to run modern weapon systems. Ten years ago, it was hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Now it's tens of millions. If you'll grant the point that the more you want a computer system to do, the more you have to, the, the, the more complex the system is that you have to build, then you realize that complexity is the enemy of security. If you start running the possibilities, there's a chance that one of those components could be vulnerable to a hack. And if that seems far-fetched, just ask Iran. The first attack using a computer virus called Stuxnet. The intent is to disable nuclear facilities in Iran. The people who cracked its code have come to believe that it's one of the most sophisticated computer viruses ever seen. A weapon that Stuxnet, a cyber attack that set the standard for ingenious hacks. We still don't know exactly how it worked. But what we do know is that U.S. and Israeli intelligence appears to have created something that could jump into the air-gapped control system of a uranium enrichment plant in Iran and then wreak havoc. The hack took control of centrifuges and then made them spin so fast they broke, and no one could figure out why. America's geriatric nuclear weapons systems may actually be immune to this kind of attack. M many of the systems right now are so old that uh, there's nobody or few, very few people who know how to get at them. And it's also the, the things also, you know, mostly analog, not entirely analog, but, uh, you know, it's also certainly not connected to the Internet. So as Herb Lynn sees it, hackers can't get into the system. And even if they could, the tools that they would use to attack it wouldn't work on such an antiquated machine. So right now, the current assessment is that the nuclear command and control system anyway is mostly robust against uh, a cyber threat. If it's not broken, it doesn't need to be fixed. That's Hyatt Alvey. She's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She studies these kinds of issues and wanted us to add that she's talking to us in her personal capacity. And for her, the calculus is simple. Um, so why try to change something that has worked for decades and assuming you change them, to upgrade them to modern technology, you are actually inviting more risks and potential threats and sabotage into the system. Shall we play a game? Oh, how about global thermonuclear? War. Remember that Matthew Broderick movie, War Games? Wouldn't you prefer a good game of chess? Later. How to take human error out of the nuclear equation when we come back. This is Click Here. Politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. 
It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. I remember very clearly that it was the coziest I've ever felt. (laughs) And then this text comes in. And I just kind of stared at it in disbelief for a little while. like with This is Jess Franklin. She's a military wife and stay-at-home mom. And just a few years ago, she had a similar experience to the one we talked about earlier, when William Perry took that late-night phone call. The U.S. Pacific Command has detected a missile threat to Hawaii. This is not a drill. Take immediate action measures. Repeat. A missile may impact... She was fast asleep, with a toddler on one side of her and a preschooler on the other, when the alert sounded. And I just kind of stared at it and thought, well, I mean, if that's true, there's really nothing you can do. So I could just go back to sleep because if I'm going to die in a few minutes, I'd rather be all snuggled up with my kids. (laughs) She tried to collect herself and then grabbed some tablets and books and took the kids to a downstairs bathroom. That's the best you can do is try to get as as close away from windows. I mean, like with a tornado, um, you want to just get where a blast isn't going to send shards of glass flying at you. The modern version of duck and cover. How long was it before you actually found out that this was a mistake? So people who lived on base actually were able to find out a lot sooner than the civilian population of the island because all the bases have those loudspeaker announcement systems that came on pretty quickly after and said it's a false alarm. But for a lot of people living off base, I know that panic was still very active for a much longer period of time. Honolulu police, how may I help you? Hi, um, I have a question. It's kind of weird. Um, I, I just got a message on my phone telling me that I need to take shelter and that there's a... Yeah, you know what, um, sir, it was a mistake. It, it's, it was just a drill. Yeah, um, we're not in danger. But in a way, we still are. I do wake up in the middle of the night worried about these things, and the Ukraine crisis has, has added to that, to that worry. That's John Lauder. He was the director of the CIA's Nonproliferation Center and a deputy director of the National Reconnaissance Office. That's the government agency that maintains the intelligence satellites that keep an eye on Russia's atomic arsenal. You know, I, I grew up in a generation where we hid under our desk in grade school, you know, concerned about, uh, about nuclear attack. Um, and then we went to duck and cover. And those of us, I wasn't quite sure what good it was going to do, but we all felt good doing it. Um, and then we went through uh, a generation where we won the Cold War. And those of us that worked in arms control, we thought we had put together a set of agreements uh, that would keep the peace and stability. So America's focus turned to things like the war on terrorism and upgrading military and intelligence resources. And while the U.S. has kept an eye on North Korea and Iran and their efforts to try to enter the Atomic Weapons Club, it wasn't top of mind. Now it is. Ukraine crisis, the 
competition with China, the concerns about the other states continuing to develop their uh, uh, nuclear uh, capabilities and the mechanisms that deliver nuclear weapons, kind of remind us all that we're still in a world where deterrence matters um, and that uh, and that we don't want to leave any impression that somehow or other the United States um, is not equipped, um, that we wouldn't be able to uh, respond, uh, God forbid, if somebody began to use nuclear weapons against us or our allies. And while he agrees that modernizing our systems does present some risks, cyber threats among them, he says the systems are past their design life, and new technologies could go a long way toward preventing mistakes in the future. Now that we're in this world of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, how can we use machines to help us make decisions as humans? We don't want to have the Dr. Strangelove uh, automatic systems in, in place uh, because, as the Hawaiian case reminds us, um, you can, you can get a false alert. And as the Stucknecks case reminds us, um, it could be attacked. ago, Ukraine became the poster child for arms control when it sent the last of its nuclear weapons back to Russia. Now you can't help but wonder, if it had kept some of those warheads, would Russia have thought twice about invading? And worse yet, will other countries feel they have to arm themselves with nukes too? I hope we get someday to a world without nuclear weapons. We're not there yet, and it looks like the next decade or so is going to be a lot more complicated nuclear environment and a lot more complicated command and control and decision-making environment for um, the management of those forces. In its latest budget proposal, the Biden administration has set aside money to upgrade the nation's nuclear weapons program. It looks like we've entered a new, new nuclear age. This is Click Here. Now a story from Nigeria. The African nation's most famous millennial musician, Bella Shimurda, has found inspiration in an unlikely subject, cybercrime. Did you catch that last part? Every day we scam an online no sleeping. Bella Shimurda isn't alone. Cybercrime has been the subject of lots of Nigerian music, which isn't so surprising when you realize just how much online scams have been contributing to the Nigerian economy. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Take the oldie but the goodie, I chop your dollar. That's a nearly 20-year-old song about a Nigerian scam known as 419. You've probably seen it. An email comes in from a Nigerian prince who wants to funnel some money through your bank account. Olatunji Olegbi is a freelance reporter in Nigeria. In a recent story for the record, he wrote about the ties between cybercrime and Nigerian music. And he says they're so inextricably linked because online scams aren't just part of the economy. They're part of the culture. You have a barely functioning government and growing, everyday growing inequality. But like, 
cybercrime unfortunately remains still remains like the most accessible highest paying job that the average person can find. The most accessible highest paying job people can find. Financial fraud, credit card scams, fake benefit claims, it's all there in Nigeria. People grew bolder in like the way they related with cybercrime in Nigeria. And one of those things included the way they listened more and accepted music that, you know, touted cybercrime, that glorified cybercrime. Hip-hop came out of block parties in the South Bronx. Then life on the streets, gangs and drugs influenced rap. So it isn't that surprising that cybercrime, something that plays such a big role in Nigerian society, would find its way into its music too. And Olegbi says that you hear it everywhere. Barbershops, the gym, parties. It's, it surrounds you. It's there. Because obviously the music is also good. Olegbi says Nigerians call online scammers Yahoo boys because they used Yahoo's free email service to scam their victims. This music has like come to represent the way we think about making it out, the way we think about hustling, the way we think about working. In Nigeria, he says, online fraud is seen less as a crime than an opportunity to make a better life. So if they tell you play the most inspiring songs or something, you might be surprised that, you know, you find people playing songs of cybercrime in that. Consider Stephen Adiyoye's new song, Ali. Ali Stephen Adelio was said explicitly like he did not support cybercrime, but also like understood that a lot of people were into cybercrime. So if you want a hit song, talk about cybercrime. So a lot of people are saying this kind of song is not song that you're supposed to listen to because this guy is promoting fraud. That's a DOA in an interview with the record. You do whatever you can do just to be fine. Like in the verse two part, I said, live your best life, don't give up. Live your best life, don't give up. Fuck what they got to say. Making money in enemies, I know I got bills to pay. I got bills to pay. So I was just trying to say, okay, do what you got to do to make money. Do what you got to do to survive. So that's the old message. Yeah, the music is good, unfortunately. <laughs> the music is good because it's just, it's realistic. And speaks to a generation that's grown up thinking cybercrime really isn't so bad. few top cyber and intelligence stories of the past week. Russia and Belarus continue to launch social media misinformation campaigns against Ukrainians. In the latest adversarial threat report, Meta says it found government-linked groups in Russia and Belarus conducting cyber espionage operations against Ukrainian telecoms as well as its defense and energy sectors. The campaigns included an alleged effort by Belarus KGB to spread news in Polish and English about Ukrainian troops surrendering without a fight and the nation's leaders fleeing the country. China has denied it launched cyber attacks against northern India's electricity grid. 
Last week, a report from the threat intelligence firm Recorded Future reported the attacks and implicated a group potentially connected to China's military. Recorded Future, which owns the record media, reported the group targeted the grid's SLDCs, which are responsible for carrying out real-time operations for grid control and electricity dispatch. And finally, universities, including Florida International University and North Carolina A&T University, have become the latest victims in a rash of ransomware attacks this spring. The Elf v. Black Cat group allegedly disrupted, among other things, wireless connections, Blackboard instructions, single sign-on websites, VPN, and some services are still down. The group took advantage of skeleton staffing during the break and claims it stole personally identifiable information as well as school contracts. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis, and it was edited by Lou Olkowski, with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. We want to give a very special thanks to William Perry and his granddaughter, Lisa Perry, host of the podcast At The Brink. Excerpts of that show appeared in this episode, and if you want to hear more, you can find their work at atthebrink.org. Click Here is a production of The Record Media, and we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Templeraston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.